Every four years, we have the opportunity to vote for president of the United States. We'll get the chance to vote this November, not for president, but for some other offices. But often, we are stuck in the voting booth voting like this, right? We're holding our nose to vote. Sometimes we might say that we vote for who we consider to be the lesser of two evils. We might think that perhaps there were times when we wouldn't have had to do that. Perhaps if we could go back in the history of the United States and you know, pick out some of our founding fathers, George Washington or Abraham Lincoln, if we could go back to some of those great men, then we would be okay. We, we would be able to vote excitedly about our candidate. Well, I don't want to burst your bubbles, but if you did enough digging, you would find out that would not be the case. Well, what if we went back further then than the founding of the United States? What if we went all the way back to biblical times? Could we find some worthy candidates then who could serve as our leaders? What about King David? Maybe we could have an exciting vote for King David. A man after God's own heart, right? Well, you know where I'm going next, though. Wasn't he the one who used Bathsheba like she was an object for his own pleasure and then murdered her husband? No, that won't do. So maybe we could go to Solomon, you know, take your pick. And we would find, if we did so, over and over again, that all of these leaders of Israel, all leaders throughout history, would not live up to the standard of a good and righteous leader. We could go back as far as creation and not find a suitable leader who would bring a restoration to this broken world. But Psalm 72 shows us what this leader looks like. Some have actually said that that's the point of Psalm 72, that it shows us the ideal leader and what we should look for in leaders. And I do believe that is somewhat true. We should expect and we should pray as we prayed for our leaders this morning. We should pray that they would judge rightly, that they would rule with righteousness and with justice. We should pray for them that they would rule with compassion. And we should pray for them that as they ruled with righteousness and in compassion, that they would prosper and that righteousness would prosper. And yet, all of that seems like a very unsatisfying summary to what we see in this psalm. There is much more to it than that. And we'll get there. But before we get to the content of the psalm, I'd like to give you two points about the placement of this psalm in particular. First, it is positioned at the end of book two of the psalms. There are five books within what we call the psalms, and... In this way, the composer, sometimes we read the psalms as though they're just varied psalms. They're just varied prayers kind of just thrown together. But I think we should see that instead, these psalms have been composed in a certain way. And in this way, they've been composed in order to reflect the five books of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The psalms have a unified message that they want to teach us. So notice first, it's positioned at the end of book 2 of the Psalter, and uh, well, Psalm 72, and how we know this is that each of these uh, ending of the books 
end in what is called a benediction or a, a doxology. So if you look at our verses 18 and 19, you see this, this blessing. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. Now if you want uh, to jot down a note about the others so you can look those up. The others are ends of these books, these doxologies, are in Psalm 41, Psalm 72, and Psalm 89. And then the last benediction of all is un- understood to be Psalms 146 through 150. The psalmist can't contain himself any longer and it ushers forth in a word of praise to God. Look in those chapters and you'll see how many times it says, Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. He is worthy of our praise. Second, this psalm is positioned at the center of the psalms. At the center of the Psalter. And you can see this simply by the fact of, of its structure, that it's positioned structurally at the center. But it's also thematically linked at the center of the psalms to two other psalms. One at the very beginning of the book of Psalms and one at the very end. The late scholar John Salehammer has suggested that Psalm 2, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, introduces the entire book of Psalms with anticipation of this king who would come. It introduces this king who is both human and divine and whose possession of the earth extends to the ends of the earth. Psalm 72 then further describes this king and his dominion which extends to the end of the earth. And this rule of this righteous king then results in Psalm 145 with the kingdom of God coming down. So in this way, we read Psalms 2, 72, and 145 as giving us an understanding, a greater understanding of how to read and interpret the entire book of Psalms. We have this identification of the king, the Messiah, who will save God's people and usher in God's kingdom, reconciling all of creation back to himself. So this is how we ought to read Psalm 72 and how we ought to read the rest of the Psalms. Notice the heading of this Psalm simply says, Of Solomon. It's a bit bit vague. Some think it may refer to being to Solomon or about Solomon. Solomon, but the normal way, way we take this inscription of the other Psalms is that it is by this person. It's by David or it's by Solomon. And so I, that's the traditional approach. And that's what I take. And um, um, among other reasons, it resonates with 1 Kings chapter 3, Solomon's prayer to God, in which he says, Give your servant an understanding mind to govern your people. He's asking the Lord that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? Psalm 72 then is a prayer for God's anointed. As we prayed for our governmental leaders, this is a prayer for God's anointed king over God's people to rule in justice and in righteousness. So let's look at the content of this prayer and we can identify at least five aspects of this king's rule for which the psalmist prays. First, he asks for a just rule. The psalmist recognizes that both the people, verse 2, and the poor belong to God. Your people and your poor. The king will have accountability for this. 
And again in verse 4, he prays that the king would defend the cause of the poor, give deliverance to the sons of the needy, and crush the oppressor. This is a reflection of God's own justice and righteousness. David himself is sure of this, as he says in Psalm 140, I know that the Lord will maintain the cause of the afflicted, and he will execute justice for the needy. As citizens of God's kingdom, this will be reflected in the lives of God's people. Righteousness and justice. This is a part of what it means for us, brothers and sisters, to be citizens of the kingdom of God. The citizens who reflect God's own heart. We don't support oppressors. Rather, we pray and we work hard on behalf of those who have been oppressed, the poor, the afflicted, the abused, the maligned. We associate with the lowly and the needy because that is what God's king looks like. That's what God's kingdom looks like because that reflects who God is. The psalmist next prays for an everlasting rule. Look at that in verses 5 through 7. As long as the sun shines and as long as the moon exists, may they fear you. That is God. May they fear you, God, for all eternity. And then may he, the king, descend down like rain, like showers on the earth. May the righteous flourish in peace under his rule, even until the moon is no more. But it's not just an everlasting rule that he prays for. The third aspect of his prayer, verses 8 through 11, is for a universal rule. So it is a, a rule which extends throughout all time and also a rule which extends throughout the whole world. His dominion will be from sea to sea. He prays that all kinds of people, even kings, will bring him gifts and fall down before him in worship and service. Now that is the kind of rule that a king would enjoy, right? An everlasting rule from sea to shining sea. And some countries have leaders who try to do that, right? They change the rules when they're in office so that they can extend their reign as long as possible. They may try to take over other countries, other nations, in order to extend their rule. But notice two more aspects of the psalmist's prayer. Fourth, the psalmist prays for a compassionate rule, that he would deliver the needy when they call for help, when the poor have no helper, But notice verse 14. He does these things not for the oppressed, not simply because it's the right thing to do, but because he actually has genuine compassion for them. Precious is their blood in his sight. Not in the sense, of course, that he likes seeing them bleed, but that he looks with compassion on those who are harmed, on those who are violently oppressed. He looks with compassion on them. He will redeem them. And fifth and finally, the psalmist prays for a prosperous rule. Verses 15 to 17. May there be gold and abundance of grain and people who flourish like the flowers of the field. Well, all of that sounds wonderful, doesn't it? That sounds like a wonderful rule. Imagine if we in the United States who... We had a ruler who met these criteria. What if we had a president who led with justice and righteousness, who had genuine compassion on the weak and poor, whose policies always led to the blessing and prosperity of its citizens? Well, then we might be okay if we had an everlasting presidency. 
which covered the whole world, right? But imagine what would happen if the wrong guy had an everlasting dynasty, a worldwide dominion. Imagine if you had a president or king who was unjust and unrighteous, who had no compassion on the oppressed, whose policies resulted in destruction and decay, and he ruled for all eternity over all the world. Well, apparently the founding fathers of America anticipated that sort of possibility, and instead of a monarchy formed a representative republic. Right? Leaders in America have limits placed on them by others. We have three branches of government so that they can limit one another, so that nobody... No group of people and no individual gets too much power. You didn't know you were going to get a civics lesson today, did you? It's almost like they were distrustful of other human beings. Apparently, they believed in something like we believe in the total depravity of humanity. Not that every person is as bad as they possibly could be, but that every human is tainted in every part of their being by sin. That it permeates our existence. That it permeates your emotions. It permeates your thoughts. It permeates your behavior, your speech. By nature, all of this is true. Even your inclinations as a human have been bent towards sin and ungodliness. Have you recognized that in yourself? That just naturally, apart from the grace of God, you are bent toward selfishness and ungodliness. And this is the reason every single Israelite king failed to live up to this prayer, to these criteria set here in Psalm 72. Every single one of them. Even those ones we like to hold up as great heroes of the faith. We can look to them as the righteous leader who will usher in the kingdom of God. No, they failed. Every single one of them would have been impossible and this is why in fact you have failed too no you you haven't been a king you haven't been a president but you've had your own little kingdoms you've had your own little realm of authority and leadership even if it was just over your own body even if it was just over yourself you've had a responsibility as that of a leader in certain areas And how did you use that responsibility? How did you steward the authority that had been given to you? Did you lead perfectly with justice and righteousness? Sometimes have you been at a loss to know the right and righteous thing to do? Can it be said that you have always used that responsibility with compassion on others? Protecting the weak? Rebuking with courage the oppressors? Have you turned a blind eye to oppression? Or maybe we've become so insulated from the poor, from the afflicted, from the oppressed, we don't even see that anybody is oppressed. Nobody that we know is oppressed. Has your leadership always resulted in blessing? Have other people flourished under your leadership? No, like all the Israelite kings, we have lived our own lives full of selfishness and ungodliness. And the root of all this, we could say, is unbelief in God. Or we could maybe even 
say the root of all this is that we want to be like God. Wasn't that which caused Satan to fall? This desire, he wanted to be worshipped. He wanted to be in the place of God rather than to submit himself under the rule and authority of God. Isn't this what happened to Adam and Eve in the garden? They desired to be like God. Instead of submitting to his kingship, submitting to his rule, they decided to lay down a few rules of their own that they could, in fact, eat from the fruit of this tree. I was trying to explain this to my children the other day. They left, so now I can give this illustration. And I was just trying to encourage them and help them to see that this, this selfishness that is always kind of trying to manifest itself in our relationships with others is not just that we're doing bad things. It's that we're trying to put ourselves in the place of God. That's what the root of sin is, is it not? And then if you see sin in this light, rather than just kind of bad habits that we sometimes do, we sometimes hurt other people's feelings, maybe we do this wrong against what the Bible says, we might not think that sin is such a big deal. But if we see it for what it truly is, a trying to put ourselves in the place of God, on the throne of God, well, then you can see how this is treasonous rebellion against your creator, your master, your king, the king of all the universe. That puts sin in a different light, doesn't it? That puts your sin yesterday in a different light, doesn't it? Your sins this past week against your brothers and sisters, against your husbands, your wives, against your children or your parents, against those you work with. This is rebellion against God. This is what sin is, brothers and sisters. By nature, we are sinners. By nature, we have rejected God as king. And because of this, we have earned the wrath of the king. And if one never turns back to him in repentance, this puts you in the category of an enemy of God. And trust me, you will never be able to stand in the judgment before this king. We've seen then that these prayers for the king were never fulfilled by any king of Israel. Even Solomon himself wouldn't have expected that he would have had an everlasting kingdom with dominion over the whole world. So what then did he have in mind if he wasn't praying for himself and his own rule? I think the text gives us some clues. First, if we're reading this psalm as linked to Psalm 2, we've already seen this Davidic king is God's son. You remember in Psalm 2, we read, The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. We should understand the king's son in Psalm 72 ultimately as being the Messiah, the descendant and offspring of King David and of Solomon down through the line. Second, you may have noticed the verbs as Andrea read through this psalm. Most of the verbs in the ESV Give it a prayerful and a hopeful sense. May he do this. May he be this. May he have these things. However, in most of these cases, a better better translation would be, he will do this. He will be this. He will have this. So in verse 1, look, we have an imperative That's why we call this a prayer. He says, Oh God, give your judgments to the king. 
And then in verses 2 through 7, the verbs really have a sense of confident fulfillment in the future. He will judge your people with righteousness. The mountains will bear prosperity for the people. He will defend the cause of the poor. They will fear you as long as the sun endures. He will come down like rain. The righteous will flourish in his days. And then in verse 8, the verb changes to express a wish or prayer. May he have dominion from sea to sea. But then in verses 9 through 14, they go back to this future fulfillment. Tribes will bow down before him and lick the dust. The kings will render him tribute. All kings will fall down before him and serve him. He will deliver the needy. He will have pity on the weak. And he will redeem their life. So what do we make of this? I think there's a certain ambiguity there for a reason that this is a prayer for the king, for God's anointed, but it also becomes a prophecy. This will surely take place. All of these things will take place. Prophecies of the coming king who will descend from heaven and establish the kingdom of God on earth with righteousness, justice, and blessing, not only for Israel, but for all God's people, Jew and Gentile, who bow down before him and submit to him as king. Now when it comes to the identity of this king, Salehammer has suggested that we have even more information in this psalm if we dig a little deeper. He notes that this psalm is kind of like an acrostic using alternating letters in the Hebrew alphabet to start each line. And it happens each line until verse 8, signaling us to pay attention to verse 8. And so he, he thinks that this signals to us we should be looking for something, and we find something in verses 8 through 12, what he calls legitimate links back to the Old Testament, allusions back to the Old Testament, giving us more information about who this king is. So let's look at those quickly. Uh, you can turn in your Bibles to Zechariah 9, 9 and 10. I'll give you one second because you might have a hard time finding it. Zechariah 9, 9 and 10. Keep your finger in Psalm 72 and notice this, this connection. As we have already seen this connection in verse 8 with Psalm 2. In Zechariah 9, 9 and 10, it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off. And he shall speak peace to the nations. Here's the link. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. It's a link right back to verse 8 of Psalm 72. This king is the Davidic king who will put an end to war and rule from sea to sea and to the ends of the earth. And then look at verse 9 of Psalm 72. In this verse, there's an allusion back to Genesis 3, 14. So you remember what happens there. God curses the serpent, puts him on his belly, and says, you'll eat the dust the rest of your life. The king of Psalm 72 is the one who will crush the head of the serpent. 
His enemy will bow before him and lick the dust. In verse 10, there is a link to Isaiah 60, verse 9, which envisions all the nations streaming to the Lord and beholding His glory. Even ships from Tarshish bring silver and gold to Him. This king is the king who will receive tribute from the nations and they will all see His glory. In verse 11, there's a link to Daniel 7.27 of nations and kings who will bow down before Him. This is that king to whom every knee shall bow. In verse 12, there's a link to Job 29.12. This is the king who is the perfectly wise man who delivers the poor when they cry for help. But the, the clincher comes in, verse 17 of Psalm 72. Remember, this is the conclusion of the psalm if you take out the benediction. So you have 1 through 17 is the psalm, and then you have the benediction. So verse 17 is the conclusion signaling the end of book 2, and what, how does it end? Selhammer again compares the language at the end of verse 17 with that of Genesis 12, 3 and other places, in which the Lord makes His covenant to Abraham and says, And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. It's also in Genesis 18, 18. All the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him, this offspring of Abraham. And again in Genesis twenty two eighteen, In your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And finally, in Jeremiah 4, 2. And in him, this anointed one, the nations will be blessed. The king of Psalm 72 then is that one promised to Abraham long ago, that offspring through whom the nations, Jew and Gentile, receive blessing through faith in him. This is what Peter preached. This is what Paul preached. Peter preached in Acts 3, these, after healing a man, the crowds were in a panic, wanting to, to almost worship Peter and John and and Peter says, it's not by our own power that we did this. And he preaches th- to them the gospel. He says, you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. It was through this power that this man was raised to life. And he goes on and he says, the prophets has, have spoken and proclaimed these things. He says, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham... And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first, to the Jews first, to bless you by turning everyone away from your wickedness. Then Paul refers back to this covenant with Abraham and his offspring, through whom the nations would be blessed. Turn in your Bibles to Galatians. Galatians chapter 3. You remember the Galatians were turning back away from the gospel of grace and embracing a a work of law that they might earn God's favor, which is no gospel at all. It is not good news at all to have to earn favor with God. So in Galatians 3, he says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly proclaimed portrayed as crucified let me ask you only this did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith are you so foolish 
having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness? Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then... Those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And in Galatians 3.16, Paul says that Christ is that offspring through whom the nations are blessed. The king of Psalm 72 is Jesus Christ. And you already knew that probably, but maybe you didn't know why that was the case. And maybe you didn't recognize the lengths to which the Old Testament authors and the psalmists went to point us away from trusting in kings or rulers or political parties or countries, away from resting in our own self-reliance, in our own righteousness or faithfulness, and to Christ who is the King. That's what they're doing. They're pointing us. Look at Christ. Behold Christ your King. And exult in him. Christ the king. Paul goes on to say. Is the one who. Redeemed us from the curse of the law. By becoming a curse. For us. Your brothers and sisters. Your rebellion against the king. Has been paid for. By the king. Christ took our curse. By dying on the cross. So that. He says the blessing of Abraham would come to us Gentiles. And he says, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So maybe we could say the blessing of Abraham is not only peace with God, but the presence of God dwelling in us. That is amazing, brothers and sisters. And that's why we see Psalm 72 in book 2 in the way it does with this word of praise and blessing upon God. These things well up in us until we have to express ourselves upward to God. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be His glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with His glory. Amen and amen. See, this psalm calls us not only to trust in this king, to rely upon this king and him alone, it calls us to delight in this king. Some people delight in the rulers and leaders of this world. Some people now find great delight in President Trump. Some people years ago found great delight in Barack Obama. People delight in all kinds of things. You delight in all kinds of things that are not worthy of your delight. We worship the Lord and say along with the the song we just sang, Behold our King. Nothing can compare. Come, let us adore Him. Delight in this King, brothers and sisters. 
If we read on into book 3, if we read on into Psalms 73 and 74, however, we might be in for a rude awakening. This glorious view we've taken in, we've beheld our king and his kingdom, we recognize sometimes this is overshadowed by the dark circumstances of our lives. And so the psalmist cries out in Psalm 74, Oh God, why do you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Do you ever feel downcast from the Lord? Your circumstances make you feel like God is against you. And our hopes for the coming king are kind of put on hold. And we're reminded again that King Jesus is already king over all the nations. And yet his kingship is not fully recognized. His kingdom is already here, and yet it hasn't been fully inaugurated. And so we pray, let your kingdom come, O God. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we pray with John in the Revelation, Lord Jesus, come. Come quickly. Do you ever pray that? Lord Jesus, come. Are you longing for the king's return? Or would you rather be able to enjoy this life just a little bit longer? Do we pray for more time to enjoy this world? Or do we pray, Lord Jesus, come quickly? Do we long for this king to come? Let's pray together.